You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians and for the many things that you've taught us through it as we've studied it. Father, as we open your word this morning again, I just want to begin by just admitting our weakness and our need for you, our inability to do anything without you. So, Father, we ask that you would come and that you would speak to us and that you would act upon us that you would move our hearts, change our lives, transform our thinking, remold and reshape our hearts. Lord, we ask that, um, that you would cause people to trust in you and to believe in you for the first time today. We believe that that is near to your heart. So God, we ask that you would do those things. And, and also for those who have followed you for a long time, God, we pray that you would refresh us, reinvigorate us, um, cause our hearts to come alive to you. But I pray that as we walk out of here today, God, that um, after hearing this message and after studying this passage, I pray, Father, that you would just do a work of transformation and change in regards to our appetites and our hunger and our thirst. Help us to have a deeper, greater appetite for, for you, a deeper hunger, a greater thirst for you, not just the things that you give us or the blessings that you give us, but, but you. And I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said. So it's interesting to think about our appetites. I just prayed for that. Um, it's really the central theme of what I hope to preach to us today, uh, Lord willing, It's interesting to think about how our appetite affects our growth. So if you think about that for a second, think about how your appetite affects your growth. Even just from a a physical standpoint, right? Um, If you or I have no appetite whatsoever, then what happens is we'll just wind up shriveling up and die, right? You're going to shrivel and die if you have no appetite, you don't eat anything. If you have an appetite that's out of control, um, I've experienced this probably more than anything else, and you can tell by what kind of shape I'm in. Um, If you have an appetite that's out of control, then you eat everything in sight, right? Blow up like a blimp. Might eventually die from growth health issues. But if you watch your diet, if you feed yourself with healthy things, then what happens over the course turn affects your appetite again, which continues to affect your growth. I'm a cyclical thing. G-I-G-O means, and G-I-G-O means what? Garbage in, garbage out, okay? Gigo, garbage in, 
garbage out, used it for a long time, had a pastor buddy taught it to me. And basically the principle is this, what you put into yourself is what comes out of you. What you fill your brain with, what you fill your soul with, what you fill your heart with, that will eventually come out in the way that you live your life. If you put garbage into your life, then here's the deal. Your life will be full of garbage. Plain and simple. It's the way it is. It's truth. Put garbage into yourself and your life will be full of garbage. But if you put nutritious things, healthy things into yourself, you can expect to have a relatively healthy life. This principle holds true not just to the physical sides of our lives, it pertains to our spiritual growth. Because here's the deal. Spiritually speaking, the dog that you feed gets bigger, and then that dog that you feed eats the dog that you starve. Okay? So if you feed sinfulness, if you feed laziness, if you feed selfishness, then things like holiness, spiritual alertness, selflessness, those things will become the dog that you starve. So what we need to do is starve the things of the flesh and feed the things of God to become spiritually vibrant, spiritually lively, spiritually growing. So keep that in mind as we look at Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Let's go there. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, you are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now the question that this passage answers for us is how do we grow spiritually? That's, that's the question that I think this passage answers by and large. There may be some other implied questions, but I think that's the major question. When we ask, how do we grow spiritually? Or how does a body of believers grow spiritually? How does this community grow spiritually? How does this family grow spiritually? How do we, how do I grow spiritually? This passage answers that question. And I think the answer that Paul gives us the grand picture, the grand vision that Paul has in his head that he's unpacking, unraveling for us here is that to grow spiritually, 
There, there needs to be a family of, of Christians exercising their spiritual gifts as they help one another to lead and to live faithfully and to grow in godliness. The, the truth of this passage, these verses, uh, really this first section of chapter 4, verses 1, all the way through 16, what we learn is that every Christian is a spiritual leader. Every Christian. If you claim Christ, then you are a spiritual leader now. That's, that's what we get here. And every spiritual leader is then called to help the church grow spiritually. Now, if you backtrack for a minute, you go back to Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. This is Paul in Acts 20 speaking to the Ephesian leaders. So I think what he says to the Ephesian leaders in Acts, which I'm going to read here in a second, I think comes prior to the writing of the book of Ephesians. So I think this letter to Ephesians that we're studying comes after that. Listen to what he says, though. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian leaders before he writes this letter. It says, pay careful attention. Anybody ever tell you to pay careful attention? To pay attention, keep your eyes open, stay alert. Pay careful attention to yourselves. To who? To yourself, right? And not just to yourself, but to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, he's speaking to a group of elders and a group of leaders in the Ephesian church, and he's simply saying, hey, watch yourself and watch your church family. Watch yourself and watch your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just watch yourself only. Don't just watch them only. Watch yourself first and then watch them. Make sure your heart is healthy, and then make sure you're helping their hearts to become healthy too. Watch yourself. Watch them carefully. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made you a leader in your church family. The Holy Spirit has done that. That's the Holy Spirit's job, right? Why? Why has the Holy Spirit made you a leader in the church? Well, he says to care for the church of God. To care for the church of God. The idea is that as leaders, as Christians, we would care for one another. To provide that kind of care for one another. And the reason he says this follows up, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. So Jesus obtained the church with his blood, right? So this is, this is serious stuff. Paul goes on to say, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Stay alert, stay awake, pay attention, right? Take care. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So what we see Paul doing in this passage is he's encouraging and warning the church. He's encouraging and warning the leaders in the church to keep a close watch on their own lives and the lives of the people around them. The Holy Spirit is the one who appoints gifts of leadership in the church. And those leaders are called to care for the church body because the blood of Christ has purchased it, right? I know I've, I've tried to lay the foundation for this kind of like twice over because I think this is really important for us as we look 
as we get back to Ephesians 4 here in a minute. Because as Paul lays this out to the Ephesian leaders prior to writing Ephesians 4, he says, so, so there's a big responsibility here for us in the church family. But then there's also a big threat to the body, right? A big threat to the body. Wherever there is a high cost, I think there will always be a high threat. And the threat that Paul warns the church about is a threat of fierce wolves. Fierce wolves arising from among them, right inside their midst. People they know, people they love, people they thought cared for them. People they called brother and sister will rise up from among them to do what? To devour the flock. That's the purpose of a wolf, is to devour the flock. Instead of building up the flock. He says that those wolves will speak twisted things. They will twist the truth, mischaracterize what the Bible says, mischaracterize what God's word says, mischaracterize what Paul even said. If you read more, you'll see that these kinds of people would malign Paul over and over and over again. They would speak twisted things, seek to draw away disciples for their own pleasure, their own self-fulfillment. So he says, be alert, watch out for these wolves. I often wonder, I often wonder which of the men in that circle that Paul's talking to as he's kneeling down on that beach in tears. I often wonder which of those men were the men that Paul was talking about. I don't know if Paul knew. Maybe he knew. Maybe that's why. Maybe he didn't know. I wondered how would they know who it was and what would they do when these wolves bared their teeth? When the false sheep's clothing came off, and they proved themselves to be wolves who were there only for their own selfish desires, what would they do? Often wonder that. I don't know. This text doesn't answer that. But I do know that what Paul does in this passage in Acts 20 is he gives them a visual. So he not only encourages them, not only warns them, but he also gives them a visual. The visual he gives them for a healthy leader is himself. Right? Because he tells them, like, you need to know the difference between a healthy sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's basically what he's saying. And then he gives them this example of himself. He says, don't forget, I've been with you for three years. You've known me for three years. I've preached the gospel in tears in front of you day and night, right? From one house to the next, you've watched my model and my example. I think that's what Paul's doing as he's speaking to them. I think he's contrasting his own life. You could say his own appetite. Couldn't you? When you think about what Paul's appetite for the gospel was, think about Paul's appetite for Jesus and how that showed in his public ministry. They would have the model and the example of what a good Christ-following leader would look like, right? They would know the difference between a leader and a sheep who had an appetite for Christ and then a wolf who had an appetite and a desire to fill his own belly rather than build up the body. I think that's what Paul's doing. So Paul gives these leaders encouragement, warning, and example. And I think he knows that his job as a Christian leader is to protect the church and is to help the church grow spiritually. He knows that's his 
job. And Paul knows he's not God's gift of everything. He knows he's just one part of the wheel. He knows that the church belongs to God. He knows that the role of leaders is to help the church grow spiritually. And, and, and if I start to make my transition back to Ephesians 4 from here, then what I think Paul sees in his mind as he's thinking about all those things is I think that what he sees is basically uh, like a combination platter um, or an appetizer combo, you could say, if we're talking about appetites. I think Paul sees in his mind maybe like an appetizer combo. Um, and as you look back at Ephesians 4, as you look at verses 7 and 11 together, and there's five basic divisions of spiritual gifts in these passages. Uh, you've got the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's verse 11. I think of those gifts like an appetizer combo. I'll keep saying that. Um, I think that that appetizer combo, so to speak, the design of the appetizer combo is to do what when you're sitting at a restaurant? It's to like, kind of like whet your appetite a little bit for the main course, right? Kind of get you ready to eat that big, fat, juicy, whatever it is you ordered, right? So you, you eat a little bit of hot wings first. You go, oh, man, I'm ready to go with the main course, baby. When it comes out, I'm going to devour that thing, right? I think that's what an appetizer <laughs> combo is designed for, and I think that's what, I think that's, Basically, what these leaders are designed for, too, it's to help all of us grow in our desire, our hunger. It's to help our appetite for Jesus increase because Jesus is the main course. Like, point to yourself. Like, you ain't the main course, okay? And neither is the person next to you. So if you're looking at the person next to you thinking they're going to satisfy you and just make you happy like they're the greatest dream on the face of the planet, I got news for you. They're appetizers at best. Jesus is the main course. And if the person sitting next to you ain't turning you to Jesus, then you've got to start asking some questions. And if you're not turning the person next to you to Jesus, you should be asking some questions too. But Jesus said, but the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's John 6, 33. Paul says that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, when you're in Ephesians 4 here, <coughs> this is that when Jesus ascended back to heaven after the resurrection as our victorious king with Satan's sin and death in tow, in captivity, he gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to the church. So this is a variety pack or a, a combination platter, an appetizer platter been given to the church body for the purpose of increasing the spiritual appetite of the church family so that the church can grow spiritually. Question, where's your appetite at today? What are you hungering and thirsting after? And not only that, but what are you actually feeding yourself on throughout the week? What are you feeding yourself? Because that which you feed yourself on is what you're developing an appetite for. So are you hungry for garbage or are you hungry for the presence of God? That's the question. See, Jesus removed our enemies, right? Think about this. Jesus removed our enemies. He did that so that we could no longer live in bondage while feasting on garbage. 
He gave us the gift of freedom to use our talents, our abilities to serve one another, glorify our risen Savior. This is what Jesus did. And the only things that stop us from serving Jesus, listen, the only thing that stops you from serving Jesus, the only thing that sits you on the bench on the sidelines is when your appetite for Jesus is no longer there. It, it, it's it, The only thing that stops you from serving Jesus wholeheartedly is when those captives, Satan, sin, and death, which Paul tells us Jesus crushed at the cross, when Satan, sin, and death have a hold on you, that's when you stop serving Christ. That's when you stop living a life of worship to Jesus. That's when you stop living your life like someone who has an appetite for the presence of God. See, Satan will tempt you. He will tempt you to serve others selfishly. He'll tempt you to sit on the sidelines in mockery. Sin will call out to you like a new lover on a street corner. And if you're feeding on a banquet of sin in a grave, then your ability and your desire to serve Jesus will either A, smell like death at best, or a little bit worse, might start to diminish. Or worse yet, would just disappear altogether. Because what's happening is your appetite for garbage is increasing, your appetite for Jesus is decreasing. So where are you this morning in that? What does your appetite for Jesus look like? Because when I think about the ways that I have sinfully and selfishly developed and fed my appetite for garbage rather than Jesus, and yet I see him hanging on the cross, perfect, sinless, selflessly, giving his life away on my behalf, but that, when I see that picture, it begins to change my desires. And not as fast as I wish it would. It begins to change my desires. I begin to hunger for more and more of Jesus. And then as I hunger for more and more of Jesus, my appetite begins to change. And as my appetite begins to change, I begin to feed that appetite as it's changing. My life begins to grow and my life begins to change. I no longer want to live in secrecy. I no longer want to do things on my own and prove I'm a big bad man. I start to live openly, I start to live in community, I start to say, hey, I'm really weak and I need people to help me and I need the Lord to change me. I think that's the change shift that I see when our spiritual appetites begin to grow healthier and healthier. So Jesus not only gave gifts to every person, but he also gave gifted people to every church. So every Christian is called to be a part of a spiritually vibrant variety pack of leaders who seek to honor God with their lives and grow up. So look around you. Look around you, around your table, families, friends, other believers around the room. Think about people in your gospel community. These people have been given to you. And you've been given to them. To serve, not to use. 
our job as gifts to one another is to, is to simply lay up gospel kindling around each other's hearts. I heard Matt Chandler say that one time in regards to pastoral ministry, and I thought about it in regards to marriage and family and leading kids and leadership in the church. Like We so oftentimes think that relationships are given to us for our own pleasure. It's sick. It's sick. It's sick that I would do that. It's sick that you would do that. And we probably ought to gut ourselves a little more often on this topic and issue. But relationships haven't been given to, to us to use each other to satisfy ourselves. We were given relationships to serve one another and to be a gift to each other. That changes the whole buried paradigm. If my first shot at marriage fell apart because I didn't understand that concept, well, I could put a good face on. I could tell you then that I thought I knew what was going on, but I didn't. I didn't have a clue. I still get it wrong today. I still need to be corrected today. Jesus not only gave spiritual gifts to every person, but he also gave gifted people to every church. And as you look around, as you see one another, your gifts to each other. The question is, do you receive those gifts? Do you reject those gifts? Or do you use those gifts? Which is it? Do you understand that you're a gift to other people to serve? I think that maybe one of the things that might be good for us to do too would maybe be to inspect the combo plate, right, that we're seeing in Ephesians 4. Maybe to inspect those pieces on the platter. People often make fun of me when I eat, especially Seth. Seth likes to do this. Makes fun of me when I eat. Um, I, I enjoy eating. I joke about this all the time. I, I love food. My friend Chris says that he thinks that food is like another love language. It probably is. Um, I enjoy eating. Um, Seth makes fun of me because he'll, I mean, it's kind of weird because I think he's examining me as I'm eating, but I examine my food while I eat, and I look out of the corner of my eye, and he's like staring at me intently. Maybe he's, maybe he's learning something, I don't know. Um, and, then, and then he'll make fun of me because um, I inspect my food apparently when I eat. I think, I think what's happening is I'm enjoying the food, right? Um, I'm enjoying it. As I examine each piece of food, this is the way I think about it, like it's increasing my hunger for the main course. That's what's happening. And again, that's, that's what I think these gifts are that God gives the church. Um, you know, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and the teachers, I, I really believe that they're more like appetizer combos that point us to the main course, which is Christ. Let's just kind of take them one at a time as quickly as I can. Appetizer number one is the apostles. Um, apostles establish bodies of believers. That's what apostles do. Um, during the time of the writing of the New Testament, there were 12 apostles, right? Remember that? 12 of them? Um, can't name them. We don't have the time to do it anyways, but there were 12 of them. Um, one of the original apostles, uh, his name was Judas. Judas actually betrayed Jesus. Here's the thing about Judas. Uh, this always gets me. Judas was in charge of the bank account. Just think about that. Judas was in charge of the bank account, and he betrayed Christ. Betrayed him for a handful of pennies. Judas's appetite for the presence of Jesus had diminished, and his, his appetite um, for, for sin had grown. That's what happened in Judas's life. 
His appetite for Jesus grew cold, even though he was with him every day. I think about the threat of that as an, just being one of the original apostles. Sold Jesus out for a handful of coins. Because he listened to the voice of Satan. He listened to the voice of sin that called out to him from the street corner. That's what he listened to. Stopped listening to the words of Jesus. Hungered for more money instead of hungering for more of Jesus. Sold Jesus out, went to his death because of his guilt and shame. This is a very real threat for every one of us. You may not want money, but if you're willing to sell Jesus out for the earthly things you want, you're headed towards a cliff. You're headed towards death. The warnings of the scriptures are clear. The encouragement, the promises of God is that he will always forgive, always draw you back. It's like a father at the end of the driveway waiting for you to come back to him. See that he is your real need. Now, think about the remaining apostles that were there. They were faithful to the end. A lot of them got crucified, died horribly. Faithful to the end, responsible for heeding the call of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching those new believers all that Jesus commanded them. This is what those faithful apostles did. From the day of Pentecost forward, those apostles helped to establish new bodies of believers all over the known world. Many of them wrote much of the New Testament. You look at Acts, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, etc. Apostles wrote those books. And today, I think it would be argued that the gift of apostle is probably still being given to the church, at least in the form of church planters. They don't have the authority to write scripture. I think that job is done. You could argue language such as the office of apostle versus the gift of apostle. Probably not worth our time. Just simply saying, I believe apostles are still given to the church in the form of church planters. As the Greek word for apostle simply means sent one. Uh, and, and it carries a sense of someone being sent to establish or sent to share the gospel, establish brand new groups of believers. Uh, missionaries are, are another form, I think, of apostle today. Um, most missionaries and church planters tend to be very apostolic or very entrepreneurial. Um, they're usually very gifted at gathering people into groups of all shapes and sizes for the purpose of helping people to know and to follow Christ. The purpose is to, is to be a leader who helps others cultivate a deeper appetite for Jesus. Is that the kind of leader that you are? Are you that kind of Christian? Are you even a Christian? Because you might want to start there. It might be good for you to ask the question, am I a Christian? Like, listen, it doesn't matter how much church experience you have. It doesn't matter how many seminaries you went to or how many books you've read or what kind of things you got behind your name or what churches you went to. Like, I am appalled over the last few months at what I see happening in the media in terms of Christian leaders like Bill Hybels, uh, Patterson, who's a leader of the SBC. These These are guys that in some regard, and these guys that are like knocking out of the park as far as like great Christian leaders, right? I'm finding disqualifying sins in their life that they've hidden for eons. It makes you wonder, were these guys even believers? I mean, how, do you, how do you get a yacht worth billions of dollars, invite your female assistant out on that yacht to spend time with you because your marriage is on the rocks? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because what's happened in that person's heart is they have desired Christless. And so they live Christless. 
such a stern warning for us, right? Don't let your heart grow cold towards the things of God. Don't let your heart lessen in its appetite for Jesus. Appetizer number two is prophets. Prophets boldly foretold the truth. At times in a futuristic sense, other times they proclaim the truth in an immediate circumstantial sense. As you study the Bible, right, you see people like Moses boldly calling the people of Israel to obey God in their immediate circumstances. Then you see people like Hosea, right, and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, all these guys boldly calling the nation of Israel to repent. Repent as they made these like futuristic promises of both judgment and, and, and redemption. Like these prophets did some wild things like cooking food over cow dung, cow crap, just so you know, symbolizing the fact that these people's lives have become a crappy smelling aroma to the Lord. Like that's a, it's just prophets using that kind of language and that kind of behavior to get a point across, to get a truth across. Don't forget prophet Nathan, right? Nathan confronted David for his sin with Bathsheba, resulted in the death of their son. Think about that. Unrepentance in yours and mine's life can affect generations forever and immediately can cause death. Like his son died because of his sin. I don't think the Lord wants that for any of us. I don't. Psalm 51 was the response of David to Nathan and to God's message. Lord, please don't take your presence from me. I think many of the New Testament apostles were gifted as prophets too. Uh, Peter, he was given the gift of prophecy to discern the lies of Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Lied to the apostles regarding their financial giving. And actually, I think uh, the way that uh, Peter put it was, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You're dead now. Dead. Like that's, man, can you imagine having that ability as a person? I mean, the gifts that God gives us and the abilities that God gives us are, are a weighty thing. I can't imagine being Peter in that moment and having the ability to do that. Or Paul, uh, later, is walking through a little town, preaching the gospel. Some dude's following him, wagging his head, talking trash. Paul stops. Text says he turned around and stared at him intently. Stared at him intently. I don't know what intently looks like. I mean, not in the, I, can't, I can't mimic it, okay? You guys probably say I'd probably do it, I suppose, but looks at him intently and goes, stop trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, you son of the devil. Blind. Like, made him blind in that moment. That was a gift of profit in those times. I'm not sure that those gifts... Um, still exist that way today? Well, maybe. I, I don't think God changes, so if he wants to give that gift to someone, I think he could. I do think that the gift of prophecy um, is still given today. On more than one occasion, I've experienced the blessing of someone coming to me, speaking the truth boldly into an area of my life that I was struggling with. Sometimes I've experienced someone humbly warning me. A couple weeks ago, I had a friend of mine warn me um, of things that were coming around the corner. Sometimes people will come and warn you of things that are coming around the corner, either A, because of your own sin, or B, because of somebody else's sin, or C, just because Satan's coming after you, seek to steal, kill, and destroy, right? 
So I think that's the way the gift of uh, prophecy kind of works. And, and, and for me, in every one of the circum, uh, circumstances and experiences where I've experienced it, the theme has always been seek Christ more passionately, develop a deeper appetite for the presence of God. So that's what it always comes down to. Appetizer number three of the evangelists. Well, the main job of an evangelist is to proclaim the good news to the lost. And when people call on Jesus to save them from their sin, he's faithful, right? He's faithful and just to grant their requests and forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. But they will not call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus. They won't believe in Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus. And they won't hear about Jesus if someone doesn't call them or tell them about Jesus. And someone will not tell them about Jesus if that someone isn't sent to tell them. That's Romans 10, in my own paraphrase. 10, 13 through 15. Now, when I think about the ministry of Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham is probably one of the most notable, um, probably one of the most publicly visible evangelists of our day. Billy Graham had a knack for communicating the truth of the gospel to people in a very simple way that right along with the power of the Holy Spirit created like this spiritual thirst for more of Jesus. It could be argued, I think, that every one of us is called to evangelism at least in the Great Commission sense from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But you don't have to be Billy Graham to have this special gift of evangelism. If you do have that, you're really passionate about sharing your faith with other people, that's awesome. You don't have to be Billy Graham to exercise that gift. You can share the gospel with your lost friends at the gym or at your job, gas station, the restaurant. But the key to exercising that gift, and really the key to exercising any of these gifts, is to begin with you, and do you have an actual appetite for Jesus? Therefore, then you have something to share for Jesus. See, if you've been appetizing yourself on garbage, what you're going to share through your life is garbage. But if your appetite has been changed, which can only happen through the power of the Spirit when you get saved, then I think from that point forward, your appetite for Christ will grow. Will you have valleys and dark moments? Sure, for sure. There must be an appetite for Christ in your life if you're going to share that. Number four, you have the shepherds, right? Shepherds basically are pastors or elders. Um, they are pastors and elders who tenderly provide ongoing care for the sheep by getting to know the sheep, feeding the sheep, leading the sheep, and protecting the sheep. Those are the jobs of a pastor, shepherd, elder. I'll say it again. Know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep. Those are the four categories of a pastor's job. Um, if you look throughout the scripture, you do a study on pastor, here's what you'll find. You'll find the Greek words for shepherd, elder, and pastor all throughout the New Testament are the same word, okay? Same word. So I call them shepherd, elder, pastors. It's the same gifting. God gives those gifts of shepherd, elder, pastors to the church for the purpose of shepherding the flock like Jesus, And so pastors and shepherds that God gives to the church, like you've got to meet the biblical qualifications first. Character qualifications, you see those in the pastoral epistles. Timothy, Titus, Peter, very clear about these. But it must also possess the ability to know the flock's unique makeup. It must be able to teach others from the Bible. It must be able to lead the flock to Jesus. It must be able to protect the flock from wolves and sheep's clothing. This is the job of a shepherd, elder, pastor. Under shepherds of the chief shepherd. Jesus is our senior shepherd. And typically, I think in most churches, there are only a few shepherds. Um, I, don't, I don't tend to think that there should be a lot of shepherds. There should be a few. I don't know what the ratio should be. 
haven't got there yet. I do think that there is some good biblical um, qualification for for shepherding assistants, pastoral assistants, um, basically pastoral assistants who help get the work of shepherding done. Those four categories, know, lead, feed, protect. Um, I think it can be seen in the scriptures. I also think it can be seen just in the day-to-day job of an actual shepherd with actual sheep, right? Um, And if you look in the scriptures, Moses had Joshua. Um, I think that actually with Joshua or with Aaron, the actual term assistant was used. Um, Paul had Timothy and Silas. Um, so I think today in the church, like especially in our context, like you could see like gospel community leaders, kids church leaders, worship leaders, um, et cetera. So, you know, guys that do some of the emceeing, I think those are very much shepherding assistants. So you might have the gift of shepherding, but you might, may not be qualified for the office of elder, shepherd, pastor and yet you could still be very valuable to the spiritual growth and the development of the spiritual appetite of the flock. Again, the job of leaders is to develop the spiritual appetite of the flock. Last appetizer, um, appetizer number five, are the teachers. Teachers help others not only to learn about, but to also know Jesus personally. If you have the gift of teaching and you're here, your job is not to help people learn about, but it's to help people know Jesus. And it's kind of both. It does seem, though, I think that as you look at these gifts, um, and most scholars, I think, would agree that uh, the gifts of shepherding and the gifts of teaching are probably interrelated and most likely connected. And in fact, there may not be actually five separate gifts here. There may actually only be four. Um, Your shepherd teacher, I think they say, is very similar in wording. Um, and I'm not smart enough to try to argue that differently. I know there are some guys that do. Um, I think I'm just going to agree with them, but I do want to take the gift of teaching and think about it separately just for a minute. Um, Because when you think about it separate from the gift of shepherding, um, I think it kind of gives you some definition. Teachers have a unique ability to learn things. That's what teachers have a unique ability to do, is to bring in information and then to then disseminate that and put that back out in a way that causes others to know. So I think that's the gift of teaching. Um, a kid's ministry teacher, if you think about that, if you've ever done kid's ministry, a kid's ministry teacher can study the curriculum really well um, and then can then turn that around and teach kids by using a variety of illustrations and activities and object lessons to help their kids not only know about, but actually know Jesus personally. I think the same is true of someone who leads an adult Bible school or Bible study, um, somebody who leads a mentoring group, somebody who teaches from the pulpit. The bottom line is this. If you take those, those two gifts, the shepherd and the teacher, uh, the shepherd elder pastor must be able to teach or they're not qualified to be pastors. Okay. Um, but a teacher does not have to be an elder to teach. So I think that's some distinction that we can make too as we look at that uh, throughout scriptures. Second <laughs> Timothy four one through five is an interesting place to go to in regards to teaching. We won't go there today, but um, studied through that just a little bit. So again, as you look at all these gifts um, and this grand vision that Paul has in Ephesians four, I think what we're learning and what I'm learning is that God gives spiritual gifted leaders to the church for the purpose of growing the church up spiritually. Now think about the concept of a gift for a minute. Um, gifts are given freely, right? Given away free. Cost you nothing. 
but they have to be received. And then they have to be utilized for the purpose they were intended for. Now, I'll be candid just for a moment and say, I've, I've gotten some gifts over the holidays that I, I've never used. <laughs> I got those gifts, and I'm like, yeah, not useful for me. Um, can you imagine that happening in the church? Can you imagine that that would even be close to biblical or God-honoring if that was what was happening in the church? And imagine God giving a gift to the church family of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, but then the church rejects those gifts? Or, or, or just imagine somebody having those gifts and then just refusing to be a part of a church family and serve in that capacity. Like it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's bad stewardship of the gifts that God has given us, right? God's gifts are good and great. Imagine somebody rejecting an apostle because they didn't believe that more churches should be planted. Maybe somebody rejecting a prophet because they were too harsh or too tenacious in their confrontation of sin. Imagine someone rejecting an evangelist because they were too excited about sharing the gospel. Or someone rejecting the shepherd because they're always asking about your spiritual health. Imagine someone rejecting a teacher because it takes too much time to sit in on their class. I can tell you that in, in my experience of ministry, the biggest reason that, that the gifts that I have get rejected is because people want friends more than they want God's gift. Does that make sense? I want friends more than God's gift. It's almost like a dissection. Like, I want you to be my friend, but I want you to take off the gifts that God's given you. I don't want you to act like a pastor when you're around me. I want you to just be, I don't know, some weird misshapen friend for me. That's painful. It's hurtful. And I, and I say that not because uh, it's important for me personally to say that. I say that because I think it's important for us to hear that. That's what we do to each other. We say, I don't want you in the way that God wired you and created you. I want you in the way that I can reshape you. That's called idolatry. A graven image made by hand, rejecting what God actually gave us. Wanting the things of God, but rejecting God. So if God's given you gifts, Giving you gifted people. Increase your appetite for Jesus. And where are you at with your appetite and your hunger today? And would you maybe after this sermon surrender your life to the Lord? Because it could be that you walked in this morning and you don't know him. You know a lot about him, but you don't know him. And what that means is if you don't know him, you're headed to an eternal separation from him. And if that's where you're headed, I don't want that. I don't think God wants that either because the greatest gift that he's given was his son on the cross for you so that he could set you free from the things that you want so he could give you the things that you need so that you could also be a gift. That's the gift he's extending to you this morning. The truth of the gospel, the truth that you and I have run off the end of the cliff. And you know what Jesus did? He ran off the end of the cliff with us to catch us on himself on a cross. Perfect. That's the gift that he gives to you and I. Would you reject that this morning? Or would you accept that? And then would you beg him to change you? Let's pray. Father, we just ask God that you would take this word and that you would apply it to our hearts. 
Lord, if there's anybody in here who is far from you, I pray, God, that you would now, through the power of your Spirit, reach out to them and give them a brand new heart. Draw them to you. Draw them nearer to you. Change their lives. Change our lives, we ask. Create in us a hunger and a thirst and an appetite for you, not just the things that you can give us. How sick it would be for a man or a woman to marry a spouse just simply because of the things that person would give them or do for them. Instead of marrying them to just be with that person. I pray that you would take us out of that sinful idolatry as it pertains to you especially. Help us to desire you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.